0: We're going to begin our Advent series in the Word of God, uh, really through an unusual means. It's a reader's theater style of of reading through the Book of Ruth, and this is going to involve all of us together this morning. But I've asked a few among us to come and help illustrate and help to read the book of Ruth together for us. And so in a moment, some uh, folks are going to join with me here on the stage. And by the way, if you're speaking on the stage, feel free to move the microphone and the music stand wherever you need it, right around there. Uh, and several of us will be in the background. Some will be in forefront, some will be in the background. But this is a, a really a wonderful time of the year to enter into the book of Ruth. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to invite you to turn with me and turn with us into the book of Ruth. And you can follow along as we walk through the book of Ruth up here on the stage. So please do that. But what we're going to be sharing with you isn't verbatim from the book of Ruth. Uh, in a commentary, And a friend of mine had done this at his church, and I thought it would be really helpful for us to do it in ours uh, sort of made a script out of the Book of Ruth. So much of the Book of Ruth is written in a dialogue form, in a conversational form between characters, with a sort of a narrator in the background. And so, a couple of the words have been adjusted in order to make this uh, an interactive moment for us. But so you follow along in your copy of the Word of God, and we'll be um, reading uh, virtually that book together up here in character form. So we'll have a Ruth, we'll have a Boaz, and we'll have a Naomi. And then some of us narrators will be different parts. So speaking of, by the way, some of the narrators will be assuming some townspeople, will be assuming some other figures in the story. We're just really in the background. Also, there'll be some slides here to just kind of give us a little bit of a background. One or two of the slides might have a Renaissance feel to them rather than an Old Testament feel. But just let it help to inspire some of your imagination. So folks, if you would come join with me up here on the stage,
1: and we haven't run through
0: this, but we hope that it'll be a blessing to you as you follow along in the Word of God and as we read from our scripts up here. And you guys will just stand right up there. I know. You're the central figures. Stay right up there. Everybody all set? You got your microphone? Back in the days when the government of Israel was in the hands of tribal chieftains, a severe famine struck the land. It was so severe that a certain family of Bethlehem and Judah, made up of a man and his wife and their two sons, moved to a country of Moab, where they intended to live as resident aliens.
2: The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. These were exorcists of Bethlehem and Judah, who crossed over into the country of Moab, where they remained for quite some time.
3: While they were there, Elimelech... Naomi's husband died, leaving her alone with her two sons. Eventually, both men married Moabite women, with whom they lived for about ten years in the country of Moab. But then these two men, Malon and Killian, also died, leaving the woman without her two sons and without her husband.
0: One day, while they
3: were still in the land of Moab, Naomi heard
0: that the Lord had taken note of the plight of his people, and that he had provided them with
2: food. So she decided to pack up and with her two daughters-in-law to leave the country of Moab. Together with the younger women, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road back to the territory of Judah.
3: But then Naomi stopped and turned to her daughters-in-law.
4: You really should turn around, both of you, and go back to the homes where you grew up. May the Lord reward your kindness to those who have died and your kindness toward me. By dealing just as kindness with you. May the Lord provide security for both of you. Each in the house of your own husband.
2: As she kissed them both goodbye, they broke down and wept.
4: We can't do
1: this. We will go back with you to your people.
4: But you must go back, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Is it possible for me to have any more sons whom you might accept as your husbands? Go back, my daughters, go back. After all, I am an old woman, too old to marry again. Even if I thought there is still hope for me, and even if I remarried tonight and would immediately have children, would you wait around for them until they had grown up? Would you avoid all contact with men to avoid getting married? No way, my daughters. My pain is far greater than yours because the Lord has been against you.
2: Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth refused to let go of her.
4: Look, your sister-in-law has turned around and is going back to her people and to her God. Why don't you turn around and follow your sister-in-law?
1: Please don't pressure me to abandon you, to turn around and to stop following you. I promise that wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you spend the night, I will spend the night. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord bring his curse upon me, if anything, Even, even death itself separates you and me.
3: When Naomi realized how determined Ruth was to go with her, she stopped arguing with her, and the two of them resumed their journey in the direction of Bethlehem. When Naomi and Ruth reached Bethlehem, their arrival created
0: quite a stir among the city's population.
2: Can this really be Naomi?
4: The
0: women asked.
4: Please, don't call me Naomi.
0: Which means pleasant.
4: Call me Mara instead.
2: Which means bitter
4: because today has made my life extremely bitter. I was full when I left this country, but the Lord has brought me back empty. How can you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and when today has brought me such misfortune?
3: So this explains how Naomi returned from the land of Moab, accompanied by Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law.
0: Now, it happened to be the beginning of the harvest season when Naomi and Ruth arrived at Bethlehem. Now, Naomi had a relative through her husband whose name was Boaz. He was an extremely rich and influential man who happened to be a member of the same clan as Elimelech.
2: Ruth, the Moabite, turned to
1: Naomi. Please let me go out to the field to scavenge for ears of grain behind someone who might be gracious to me.
4: Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth
3: went out to the field to scavenge behind the people who were harvesting the grain. As luck would have it, she just happened to come to the field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of Elimelech. Before long, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem.
2: May the Lord be with you, he greeted his harvesters.
3: And may the Lord bless you,
2: they replied.
3: Then Boaz asked the foreman of the harvesting crew, To whom does this young woman belong? She is a young Moabite woman. She
0: is the one who came back from the country of Moab with Naomi. She requested of me, please let me pick up the leftovers among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She has been standing here ever since she arrived early this morning. She has hardly moved.
2: Then Boaz turned to Ruth.
0: Listen carefully to me, my daughter. Don't go to any other field to scavenge. Don't go anywhere else. Join my crew of young women over here. Keep your eyes on the field where they are harvesting and follow them. In fact, I have given orders to the men, that they are not to harass you. When you get thirsty, feel
3: free to go and drink from the containers of water which the young men have drawn. When she heard this, Ruth fell down on her face and bowed low to the ground.
1: Why have you treated me so kindly? Why have you paid such attention to me? After all, I am a foreigner.
3: I have heard the reports of everything you have done for your mother-in-law after your husband died. I am aware that you left your own father and mother and your native land and have identified with a people about whom you, whom you previously knew nothing. May the Lord reward you for
0: your actions. May you receive full compensation from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose, whose wings you have sought asylum. O
1: oh, man, be worthy of your kindness, my Lord. You have reassured me by speaking gently to me, your servant, even though I don't deserve to be compared with any of your female workers.
0: It happened to be time to eat, so Boaz said to Ruth, Come over here and eat with us. Feel free to take your portion of food and dip it in the vinegar.
2: So she came and sat down beside the rest of the harvesters. Meanwhile, Boaz served Ruth her portions of the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. In fact, she had more than she could eat.
3: When Ruth got up to go and scavenge, Boaz gave orders to his young men. Let her gather grain even among the sheaves,
0: without harassing her. In fact, I want you to pull some of the stalks of grain out of the bundles and purposely leave them for her to pick up. You are not to insult her.
2: So Ruth scavenged in the field until evening. When she beat the grain out of the stalks she had gathered, it amounted to almost six gallons. She picked up the grain and headed back to town.
0: When Ruth's mother-in-law saw how much she had harvested, and when Ruth had taken out the leftovers from the satisfying meal and presented them to her, Naomi questioned her.
4: Where did you scavenge today? Where did you work? May the person who paid such attention to you be blessed.
2: Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man with whom she had been working.
1: The name of the man whom I work today is Boaz.
3: When Naomi heard this, she exclaimed,
4: May the Lord bless him, so the Lord hasn't withdrawn his kindness toward the living or the dead. The man is a relative of ours. In fact, he is one of our kinsman redeemers.
1: Oh, there is something else he said. He said to me, You may join up with my servants until my whole crop has been harvested.
0: Then Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law,
4: Look, my daughter, it would be better if you went out with his crew of women. That way, you won't be violated in another field.
1: So Ruth joined up. with Boaz's
2: female workers and scavenged after all of them until all of the barley and the wheat crops had been harvested. Meanwhile, she lived at home with her mother-in-law.
0: One day, Naomi's Ruth, Naomi Ruth's mother-in-law approached her.
4: My daughter, isn't it up to me to find a place for you where you will be secure and well provided for? Look, there's Boaz the man whose crew of women you joined. He is a close relative of ours. Look, tonight he is planning to winnow the barley on the threshing floor. Go, take a bath, put on some perfume, get dressed up in your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. Be careful you don't let the man know you are there until he has finished his evening meal. When he goes to bed, take note of the place where he is lying. Then go over to him, uncover his feet, and lie down yourself. He will tell you what to do.
1: Whatever you tell me, I will do. So Ruth went down
0: and did exactly as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in fine spirits. Before long, he went and lay down at the far end of the pile of grain. Then Ruth snuck up to him, uncovered his feet, and lay down herself. Around midnight, he was cold, and groping for his covers, he was shocked to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you?
1: I am your maid, Ruth. Now spread the quarter of your covering over your maid. After all, you are a kinsman-redeemer.
0: May the Lord bless you, my daughter. Your latest act of kindness is even more impressive than your previous actions. You have refused to go after young men in their prime. Regardless of whether they were rich, poor, or rich. Listen, my daughter, don't be
3: afraid. I promise to do for you anything you request. The fact is, all of the leaders of this town know that I am an honorable, know what an honorable
0: woman you are. Now, it is certainly true that I am a kinsman redeemer, but there is another man who is a closer relative than I am. Stay here for the rest of the night. Then in the morning, if he agrees to redeem you, fine. Let him do so. But if, but if he prefers not to redeem you, then, as sure as the Lord lives, I promise to do so myself. So go on, lie down until the morning.
2: So Ruth lay bare at his feet until morning. Before it was light enough for people to recognize each other, she got up. Then Boaz said to himself,
3: No one is to know that the woman has come to the threshing floor. As Ruth was about to leave, he said to her,
0: Give me the shawl you are wearing. Here, hold on tightly. So she held out her shawl while he measured out six scoops of barley. When he had put it on her shoulder,
3: she headed
4: back to the city.
2: Then Ruth returned to her mother-in-law.
4: Who are you, my daughter?
3: So she reported to her everything the man had done for her. And then she added,
1: He gave me these six scoops of barley. You must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, he said.
4: Stay here with me, my daughter, until you find out what happened rest assured the man won't relax until he can settle the issue today
0: meanwhile boaz had gone up to the town gate while he was sitting there he caught sight of the kinsman redeemer about whom he had spoken passing by come over here mr so-and-so
3: sit down
2: so he came over and sat down
3: then boaz rounded up ten men who were the members of the town's council sit down here
2: so they sat down as well
3: Then he reported to the kinsman redeemer.
0: Naomi has returned from the country of Moab. Now she has decided to sell the plot of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. I thought I'd
3: present my proposal
0: to you in this way. Make the purchase in the presence of the men who are sitting here, these elders of my people. If you would like to redeem it, go ahead. Otherwise, tell me so I know. After all, you are the first in line to redeem it,
3: and I am next.
2: I will redeem it.
3: Oh, by the way, when you claim the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabite woman, I will claim the widow of the deceased in order to preserve the name of the deceased on his estate.
2: In that case, I am unable to redeem it, because I would thereby jeopardize my own estate. Go ahead, you may assume my role as kinsman-redeemer. I am unable to do
3: so. This is the way cases involving the redemption or exchange of property used to be handled in Israel. To legalize any transaction one of the parties would take off his sandal and hand it to the other. This is how deals were formalized in Israel. So after the kinsman redeemer had said to Boaz,
2: You may make the purchase yourself,
3: he took off his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and to all of the people there, Today you are a witness to the fact that I hereby have acquired from the hand of Naomi
0: everything that belonged to Elimelech, as well as everything that Kilian and Malan owned.
3: And, more importantly, I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite woman, Malan's widow, so that she may become my wife, and so the name of the deceased may be preserved on his estate. Now the name of the deceased won't be removed from the family tree, nor from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses to today.
0: Then all of the people who are in the gates, that is, elders, answered.
2: We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your home as fruitful as Rachel and Leah. Both of whom he established within the household of Israel. May you accomplish great things in Ephrathah, and may you become famous in Bethlehem. May our house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give to you through this
1: young woman.
0: So Boaz married Ruth, and she had become his wife. When she had, when he had intercourse with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi,
2: Bless the Lord, he hasn't left you without a kinsman redeemer today.
3: And may his name become famous in Israel.
2: May he restore to you the joy of life.
3: And may he be your support when you are old.
2: After all, your daughter-in-law, who loves you so deeply and has given birth to him, she is be better, better for you than seven sons.
0: Then Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his foster mother. The women of the neighborhood joined in the celebration.
2: A son had been born to Naomi.
0: They gave him the name Obed. He became the father of Jesse, who was the father of David.
2: This is the family line of Perez.
3: Perez became the father of Hezron. Hezron became the father of Ram.
2: Ram became the father of Aminadab.
3: Aminadab became the
0: father of Nashon. Nasham became the father of Salmon.
2: Salmon became the father of Boaz.
0: Boaz became the father of Obed. Obed became the father of Jesse.
2: And Jesse Jesse became became the father father of of David.
0: David. Well, thank you for being on that journey with us. Thank you all. So remain in your Bibles in Ruth chapter 1. Likely many of you have read this in preparation for our series. Let me get my Bible aside. And if you are in your Bibles and, uh, and you're able to look at the last verse of the previous book in your Bible, that is in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, you'll notice where the book of Ruth falls into um, our canon of the scripture, that is our order of things. You're alerted to that in the first verse of the book of Ruth. But look at verse 25 of Judges chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Continuing on to Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in a country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let's go to the Lord this morning in prayer as we enter into this wonderful time together in the word. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have given us a testimony of righteousness through the line of Jesus Christ. Not only have you delivered to us a wonderful Redeemer, but you have given us a story of grace that shows your sovereign care for us. For long ago, you had been designing for our redemption. Long ago, you had been planning to give us this great gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And Father, as we are here in this gospel of Ruth, may this morning our hearts be warned towards your heart. May our love increase as we respond to your great love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is really the introduction to Ruth. But the theme is emptiness. And this morning we'll be looking exactly what emptiness looks like. By the time you come to the book of Ruth, if you read through your Bible, starting in Genesis and Exodus And you come to the book of Ruth, you've endured a very agonizing reading of the book of the judges after learning so much of the depravity of the human race and really the darkness and unbelief that exists within all of us. But ever since Adam and Eve and we read Cain and Abel and we read the times of Noah's ark and Abraham's unbelief and his disobedience and we read of uh, Egypt's paradise where Abraham's family turned into a dungeon and the wilderness wanderings, and the many cycles of Israel's rebellion and repentance, after we read of all of this, then finally we come to this book called Ruth. When Joshua brought the people through the Jordan River to the Promised Land, as you remember, they stood on the mountains on the other side of the Jordan and confessed their allegiance to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name for our great God. And they chanted back and forth between the two mountaintops, between the summits, of uh, Jerusalem, and there they chanted they back and forth the blessings on one mountain and the cursings of the other mountain and, and demonstrated that if we obey and if we serve God, we love Him with all of our heart, blessings will flow as if down from the mountain upon us. But So also, if we would turn our hearts away from God, surely the cursings of the covenant will be upon us as they would come down from that mountain of the cursings. So their outcome would be based upon whether they would obey or rebel against God. And it's in the very very first verse of Ruth that we learn that this isn't a separate time period. While we have the turning of pages and we have the uh, alarming nature of having a new book that we're reading, we find out that actually this is nestled somewhere in the book of Judges. And so if you were of the mind, you could cut this out of your Bibles and sort of paste it into the, maybe somewhere in the middle of the book of the Judges. Embedded in this period of around 410 years are countless families like Elimelech and Naomi's family. They are people who are typical of the Jewish families, just normal people, just common people who are caught up in the culture that has so influenced them away from a Godward heart that they have become pragmatic, rationalizing away decision after decision, until they come to excuse bigger and bigger decisions and life choices. Meanwhile, outside of the boundaries, outside of the borders of Israel, other tribal nations prey upon the Jews who are left to fend for themselves, having abandoned God and worshiping their false gods. Like, for example, when we see in Gideon's life, and you remember this, that that there in the front yard of Gideon's home was an altar to a whole other god, as uh, in the face of Yahweh. The Midianites in Gideon's life were, were praying pirates and bandits and they would come and raid the villages just at the time of harvest, leaving people in a famine-like state. And the people without the help of God were unable to resist and push back against this because God had withheld His hand of protection and blessing upon them. But in this book, We learn of one tribe of people on the east side of the Jordan River that were a plague for Israel for hundreds of years. They were the people of Moab, descendants of Lot, who when his wife was cursed by God for her unbelief, his daughters slept with him and procreated a progeny that would raise up to be an embittered people toward the descendants of Abraham and Israel. These Moabites were a people who wanted nothing to do with Yahweh and had either adopted other pagan people's gods, certainly not Abraham's god and Lot's god, they had adopted other people's gods and other nations' gods, and in fact even invented, come to invent their own pantheon of gods. And so they were certainly not a people who were under the covenant of Yahweh, outside of the border of Israel. In the first five verses of this book, and the first five verses of this text, We'll see the conditions for redemption couldn't be more ripe. The days couldn't have been darker. When all is dark and when despair is great, God seeks and God works. There are two types of darkness that we see in this story that highlight the glory of God's redemption. They serve as sort of a backdrop for God's glorious redemption. Two types of of darkness. They serve as a highlight of God's glorious redemption and they also glorify God's sovereignty in delivering salvation to both people there. God delivered salvation to people there and God's delivering salvation to people here like you and I. So this morning, let's look firstly at the evasion from mercy. Evasion from mercy. You see, in, in this time, Elimelech takes Naomi and they head outside of the boundaries of Israel, outside of the Promised Land, outside of the Covenant Land. And instead of instead of pleading for God's mercy because of famine, that is the curse of uh, due upon them for their sin and rebellion was very evident. Instead of pleading for God's mercy, they flee. Elimelech had crafted his own solution to deal with the consequences of sin. Instead of they're dealing in dust and ashes with his own sin, his own wayward heart, and leading his family in repentance, and leading the people around him in in a Godward focus and brokenness over sin. Instead of doing that, he crafted his own solution to deal with the consequences of sin. And really, Jonah like ran away as far away from the covenant-keeping God as he thought he could. And he went to a place that we have said is, is Moab. And Moab was exactly where not to go. Moab was exactly where not to go, and there's several reasons for that, as we had already alluded to, but the Moabites were the descendants of Lot's Lot's incestual relationship with his daughters in Genesis 19, 30 to 38. Secondly, the Moabites were a people who resisted Israel as they sought to move forward towards the promised land. You remember, they are freed by God's a wonderful, miraculous way through from the Egyptian slavery and they move up towards the promised land and really the easy way to go is really to go through the Moabite territory into the promised land but the Moabites would resist them and not give them passage according to Numbers 22 through 24. But also the Moabite women in, in Numbers 25, 1 through 9 as the Israel was, was dwelling in the wilderness the Moabite women even sought to seduce Israel's sons and thereby even jeopardize and compromise that which of God had commanded them not to take a life from another nation. Moses was clear, specifically clear in Deuteronomy 23, 3-6, when he, when he proclaimed the, the blessings of the covenant and the provision of the covenant that God had made with Israel, that although in distant ways the relatives would seem to be of some way Israelite, that is through Lot, through Abraham's family, that they were cut off, they were excluded. There was no part of them that were to be part of God's covenant with the people of Israel. Then lastly, there was a very wicked and, and powerful king named Eglon. And he had long oppressed Israel according to, to Judges 3:15 through 30. A very despicable name. For these five reasons and more, this was exactly not the place to go. when you need provision and protection. But you know, we are, we are prone to not just evade the work of God in our life when God convicts and moves in our heart, that will lead us to repentance. We are We are prone not only to evade the work of God, but we're even prone to evade his merciful work in such a way that we will do the absolute worst thing in order to escape his grace. We will go, we will invent, we will do whatever it takes to avoid God's mercy, including doing the one thing we shouldn't do. And Elimelech moves to Moab with Naomi. And really there's a theme throughout scripture, as it is a theme really throughout the history of humanity, and really a sub-theme in the microcosm of our own little narratives of our own lives, and it is that it is um, this theme of running away from grace, and this certainly becomes a very major theme when it comes to the crucifixion of our Lord. We would rather murder God than bow down to him, and we did. And not only did we crucify God, not only did we kill God, but we executed him in the most horrific manner so as to say, no way.
4: There's no way that
0: you're going to be my savior. No way you're going to be my deliverer. There's no way I'm going to be restored in repentance and to renewal and redemption in you. No way. I will do anything but, including killing the Messiah. If you want to know something about how unbelieving your heart is apart from the work of grace, just keep your eyes fixed on the crucifixion and the foreshadowing of unbelief in the book of Judges. Elimelech's name means my God is my king. Now then, we just read in the last verse of the book of Judges that Israel had no king? Here, it, it, incredibly and providentially and certainly spiritually, the, the Holy Spirit inspires this and to signify, to alert us, that here within the very beginning of this book that there is a signal that there is at least the, the foundation of faith that needs to be there in, in the heart of God's people. And that is, that my God is my king. How, how, how interesting is it that Elimelech would turn away from his very name's sake. He would turn away from his very name and his unbelief and his seeking after his own solution uh, rather than repenting. who oh, is the Lord. And Naomi's name means pleasant, but even more so than that, it's taken from the words that really put together the kindness of Yahweh. Naomi's Naomi's name literally means the kindness of Yahweh. Both prove to be types of us. When we bear one name, what is our behavior like? These people even have nice names. They are normal people, just trying to work out their problems. If anything, their names and their background reflect some level of blessing and return devotion to God.
4: But not only are their
0: names signifying of something that seems familiar to us, and that is being called into the blessed favor of God, but their their address is actually really familiar to us. Their address is very special. They were of the tribe of Ephraim. They were Ephrathites. Which means the region that they lived in was the area of Bethlehem. Bethlehem meaning the house of bread. Here we have a, a place where, where there's an abundance of bread, where the, the, the wheat fields and the barley is all around them. It's, it's just abundant and overflowing and really a capital for, for, that, uh, for that region of, of great supply and a signal of God's great favor and blessing. These people, of all people, should have been living in the blessing, living up the blessing and favor of God and the riches of God's merciful kindness to them. In his faithful covenant towards them, these people were, they were in church. And there were people who were, who were people of God, so to speak. These people were in the covenant, and not only that, but they were in the middle of the covenant. They were in the blessed place of Bethlehem that will soon have problems. This place was supposed to be a place of great bounty, the Lord's blessing, and right away here the writer of Ruth signals to us that we have we have a lot of contrasts here that are just standing out. Well, in the next name means my God is my king. Yet you know, I'm not going to bow to him. Naomi's name means pleasant, but it seems like anything but the pleasant things have fallen upon her. And here they come, their home address is Bethlehem. What greater place what greater signal of God's blessing than to be in Bethlehem? And now here the place of Bethlehem has become a place of famine for them. Right away here in the first several verses, we recognize there is a background of great darkness and despair. And Micah, this makes Micah's prophecy so great when we come to it in Micah 5, verse 2. Micah, the prophet, hundreds of years later would prophesy that this very same town, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, would, would bear out a son who would be our Messiah. And he would say, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth as from old, from ancient days. You see, the foundation for our salvation was being put into place here in these first few verses in Ruth. While we want to quickly run past the first five verses and get into the drama of the story and the loyalty of Ruth and the dynamics of God's blessing, let's not overrun this this foundational thing where in these first few verses in Ruth there is, there is immediate salvific redemption for these troubled people. So we see the evasion from mercy. But secondly, we see a great theme here. And this is a theme, probably a really great theme for the book of Ruth. And if you take notes in your Bible, write this across. Emptiness and fullness, but emptiness here. And secondly, we find that this, this darkness, there's two types of darkness. The evasion of mercy, from mercy and there's also an emptiness of condition. Also in these verses we find out now something very personal, very troubling happens to these people. Elimelech dies. And so do his two sons. We find out that, that they've been living in Moab for, for about ten years' time so far. And, and, life, and, and here they've taken on you know these Moabite daughters, these Moabite women as, as daughter-in-laws and daughters. And these men... We find out that in this ten-year time, these sons have not been, a- been able to produce an air. There's emptiness. There's emptiness in Bethlehem. There's emptiness in the womb. There's emptiness in faith. And there's empty seats around the table. Emptiness. Great, great emptiness. The problem doesn't appear to be with the woman. I'd like to suggest that, that um, while we're getting into some unstated and, and silent territory, we, we know that later on Ruth is going to bear herself. And so there's a suggestion here that barrenness is caused by the sons and not by the Moabite women. You see, these men, the men of this family, were dead twice. Firstly, by not being able to have any progeny, and secondly, by succumbing to some sort of deadly fate. Layer upon layer we find the writer of, of Ruth just laying on just this emptiness and emptiness and emptiness. Darkness, and famine, and barrenness. So layer upon layer is the consequence too. of finding that as we look into this word in Ruth... We find this not only just layers of circumstantial emptiness, but layers, really, these are all telling of the signs of the layers of unbelief and disobedience. One cannot calculate the deadness that sin brings even into a believer's life. You see, there is death and there is dying in every sin, in every part of every sin. Sin is always deadly and severely costly. Many of the consequences for sin cannot be foreseen or, or prepared for. So certainly you've lived long enough to, to recognize that. But so often how how easily we forget this. When we see the circumstances are certainly layered, you know, um, upon trouble upon trouble. It's just layered upon these people. But this is all just just really reflective and really illustrative of the greater layers of unbelief and disobedience. And so too, in even in followers of God's life, just like Limelech and Naomi, even we are susceptible to layers of disobedience and unbelief, where we need God to to just kind of peel back the true heart condition, not just simply remove the barrenness or the famine or the emptiness, but to peel back the unbelief and the layers that we have just sewn so tightly, upon our hearts and tailored, crafted in our unbelief and deceive ourselves that we are okay, that if we can just go over here instead of humbling ourselves before the Lord, that we will find blessing and we don't need His blessing. We don't need His provision if we can seek after it elsewhere. And layers and layers and layers upon layers just um, cover over our hearts. Many times the consequences of sin are terribly agonizing And often they are permanent. You see, the famine in Israel was not caused by by natural circumstances. It was the direct hand of God in fulfillment of the covenant curses found in Leviticus 26 and found in Deuteronomy 28. This was what God had promised would take place if people had turned away from him. But not only had famine driven this family off of their inherited property in Bethlehem, but now this family has suffered a far greater possibility, and that would be extinction. Extinction because of their inability to produce the progeny. And so there are two very major deaths. And really this is just at the very tip of the vexation of spirit that that was caused in the heart of Naomi. She will soon, in this book, express just how deeply she feels, and specifically, about her God. She is empty of a place to call home. She's empty of her husbands and sons. She's empty of a future family, and empty, it appears, in her faith. And she's in a very sad situation that we believe that only God will be able to redeem. And so these first five verses set the stage for what we find to be the emptying of Naomi. The emptying of Naomi. Unbelief, disobedience, rebellion against God's word, they all bring devastating consequences. Apart from the mercies of God, we have no shelter from the severe hand of God. This is what's very evident here in the first few verses. And so in these first five verses, it's a very dark and, and they show a very bitter dealing of God with his people. And the next four chapters really reveal his great kindness and the undoing of the twisted and devastating effects of sin and unbelief. It's not hard to see as we move forward that God moves towards those who come to an end of themselves and an end of their own schemes. God mercifully receives us back when we have strayed even into the dark depths of far-off places. Let me say that again. God mercifully receives us back when we have strayed even into the dark depths of far-off places. The book of Ruth could really be titled The Gospel of Ruth. Because in it we learn that we are not so much like these people. And our God is still the same type of God. He is rich in mercy and abundant in love and longs for us to return to him. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, which explains, really demonstrates the book of Ruth, or at least essentially the first chapter of Ruth, as we see God's desire to give us, grant grant to us great mercy and grace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1. And you were dead. We were in Moab. We left Bethlehem to go to Moab. And we died. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you write in your Bibles, you can write Ruth next to Ephesians 2. Because Ruth is circumstantially, materially a picture of Ephesians 2. A God, like Boaz, who was an extremely rich and influential man, spread his covering over you and I, so that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were of Moab, not a covenant people, not a people deserving, his favor, he would make us alive. Not just like some of the women in the field, but make us alive together with Christ because he set his grace upon us. And in the coming ages through Boaz, by means of Ruth, would show forth in us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you know why, God? is so adamant that he's rich in mercy. Why doesn't he just say he's merciful? God says he's rich in mercy because it's going to take a mammoth amount of mercy to heal us from our sins and to pay in full the debt that we created in our time of unbelief. It will take riches of mercy storehouses of mercy. We notice here that it isn't just the people of Moab like Orpah and Ruth that will need God's movement of mercy, but it is even God's own chosen people like Naomi who will need to be restored in the blessings of his covenant. This book isn't just written to the lost, It's not just written to the unbelieving, but is written for those who are of God. The gospel is for the lost, and the gospel is for the found. And as believers, we can find ourselves in this story. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you feel very much like Naomi, and you feel that God has dealt with you bitterly. He has withheld something from you or has been behind something that has happened to you, in some ways a loss or a loss from of expectation. To you it seems entirely unfair. Or maybe you're here this morning, you're like Ruth, where you are just going along.
4: You're a little bit ignorant,
0: a little bit unmindful that such mercy and grace existed. Mindful, yes, of, of your poor condition and that your poor estate but certainly mindful, too, that there must be more. We make decisions often that are significant in our lives that are based upon what we feel is the most practical and functional way to avoid living by faith under the hand of God. We make decisions all the time that just make sense. All the time that avoid Anything of the unction of faith. We demonstrate so, by the way, by much of our life being prayerless, by much of our life being full of pride and and by our lack of humility before the Lord. This is how we demonstrate that we're willing to work in a functional way, not just in a faith way. We're willing to do whatever it takes to evade mercy because mercy would mean that I am a debtor and I don't want to, I don't want to be enslaved to anybody who has given me favor. So we run as far away as we can from Bethlehem. We can go great periods of time living apart from fellowship with God too. That's entirely within the capacity of a believer, a child of God. It's entirely possible that there was some who are listening here. It's been a long time since you've walked in fellowship with the Lord and that sweet communion and known his peace in your heart maybe 10 years, maybe longer. Sometimes that period of time can pass by before we look at our condition and realize that we need to at least begin by turning, by turning back to God. And maybe you have been so far away from God that you don't know what kind of hope You don't know what kind of reconciliation or restoration might lie in store for you. And the book of Ruth demonstrates to us that's okay. But you can never know the hope and you can never know the blessed peace of sweet fellowship and forgiveness in God until the first thing you do is look to him. We might not believe and you might be sitting here and not really believe that there is a whole lot of hope for you in your circumstance or in your life. You not, might not believe that there's, a of restor- that there's a lot that can be restored. Something seems so permanent. How can anything be put back in its place? Relationships have been far too strained and, and your ways of living have become far too embittered. You might not really believe there's a whole lot that God can do for you. When all you have inside of you is at least you know that one thing you can do is that instead of turning away from God, you know that at least you can turn towards Him. You don't know what else is in store, you don't know how full it can be. You're not even willing to believe all of its fullness but you're willing to turn. And like Naomi, we turn back to Israel, we turn back to God's covenant, and you don't know what's left. You come back into Bethlehem and you are crying. And you say, do not call me present. I'm a bitter person. But you're willing to begin to move in the right direction. And that's the beginning of the gospel, isn't it? You won't know what God will do until you firstly turn in his direction. And that's all. And God meets Naomi right where she's at. And he meets Ruth too. Let's pray.